Jesus, it's packed. Yeah, go down the back there, so. Welcome to the Snog with Richie and Lavin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Snug Podcast. My name is Richard Loftus. And I'm Lavin. Uh, this is a podcast from the west coast of Ireland where we interview uh, interesting people from all walks of life, uh, learn about their, their lives, their side hustles, their passions, their interests, and everything in between. Um, how are you now? Jeez, I'm grand now. How about yourself? I'm grand, okay. Yeah. Are you fully recovered from the Cunyu now? I was recovered, like, the day of the Cunyu. I was fine. <laughs> you know, I was fine, like, the Cunyu ended on the Sunday. I was fine on the Monday. It's grand. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you've, you're more athletic when it comes to that kind of crap ah, than me now. maybe so. <laughs> I'm just not going as hard as I used to, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. After day two, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah, well, that was the plan this year to only do two days. Yeah. But then, of course, I was playing Music and Tully's on the Friday, so... <laughs> And you, had, of that. and you had the exhibition as well and the exhibition oh yeah the exhibition yeah, yeah <laughs> walking out of here at five in the morning watch that kind of that was that was me done yeah i was, was yeah. gonna make the sunday now yeah oh did you see any boats at all i see i've seen a few down from Parkmore, okay, but I didn't, yeah. I didn't get in so that's another box i'll have to take next year mm-hmm. so you know definitely i didn't see the climbing race this year either i was really looking forward to that but yeah just missed it. That's know. just the weather, isn't it? Like, yeah, you know? it's always about that. Yeah, it's been a bit very uh, tempestuous summer here. Like, so. oh man, is the uh, wettest. Yeah, was it the wettest July on record? Is it? It was. Yeah. 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 It was. Mad. So, yeah. so yeah, they had to push everything from from the uh, the Saturday onto the Sunday. Really, didn't yeah. they? Like you know, mm-hmm. um, it was a great great. Uh, for a first crinio, was pretty good. It, know, it was. A, it was a good one. At least the boats this year sailed. You know? Yeah. So it was wonderful to watch. It was a it was an eye opening experience for me, really, to be honest with you. Oh yeah, what you got to see all you in your natural habitat, mm-hmm. yeah, and put all those uh, faces to names that we hear from stories, like you know, absolutely, yeah. yeah. They all come, they all come back in the cranium. Um, so that's it now, really. The the summer's kind of drawn to an end now, like really. There's nothing really. I might get an Indian summer. You might, fingers crossed. Hopefully. Or even an African somewhere or anything. That would be nice. Um, today we are joined by um, a man of men in talents. Um, to say he's prolific, I think, is uh, putting it slightly, really. Um, we are joined by uh, little John Nee. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Hi, Lavin. How you doing? Hey, how are you? Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm glad you, you found the place all right. Yeah, I did. Like that, I was just straight off the motorway, so I was really lucky. It didn't, with no complications. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, yeah, so when I say you're a man of many talents, you're a theatre performer, t- writer, director probably, producer, uh, what you got, musician, poet, street performer. Is there any caps I'm missing for you there? Well, yeah, there is a few. I w- sorry, I was distracted in my own head when you were saying that because <laughs> as you said it, I remembered a review I got a few years ago. Was it 19, or two, 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 2012? the spark plug show oh yeah and uh this guy who like i've never heard of him since oh don't think anybody else has heard of him since but he says that i was a jack of all trades okay and master of none ah uh, yes and uh i took it very personal very badly <laughs> kind of thing. oh yeah and I really and i thought that's going to be on the internet forever and then just today i was thinking oh, i wonder could i find that i tried <laughs> to find it you know yeah um, but yeah so i'd have a very punky attitude to things yeah so it would be I mean, it's only now that I'm starting to call myself a director. 
Uh, because like I've directed the shows. Yeah. Uh, and I see the shows, uh, like I see an overall picture of the shows when I'm creating them, the theatre shows. So yeah, there's that direction aspect to it as well. And funny, we're doing an application for a show to tour. And as we're filling in the, the part where it's in, what's your job kind of thing. And uh, we put down musician, mm -hmm. which of course I felt dodgy about for a long, long time calling myself a musician when I know so many brilliant musicians yeah and like I'd be very much a punk tradition okay great um so it would be I wouldn't consider myself as a musician I do now but it took a long long while um but anyway I thought yeah but I composed all the music the soundtrack to the show as well and there's been a few shows that I've done that to, at this stage well yeah a lot of shows yeah I've composed the soundtrack so I had musical composer as well you know um and that's the kind of dip because like you get feel like a pain in the hole kind of you think yeah I done this and then and oh yeah you know I designed the the, the set as well did you not you know just then it's like just fucking get over yourself and just <laughs> yeah. I wrote it and performed in it kind of so yeah. sometimes I let it, but then other times it's worth it to actually say all that you did do yeah yeah do you yeah. know but in conversation it wouldn't go into all the kind of bits that you did like if you don't give yourself credit who else is going to you know well, yeah, there's like. some situations where you really have to do that you yeah know? but it's I think in this day and age it's really difficult. The whole self-promotion aspect, to it, particularly if you're living in the west of Ireland, and you're not going to get theatre reviewers here, and yeah. if you're doing it, if you're self-motivated, self-producing, it's up to me to say oh, I do all this or yeah, yeah. But it gets a real, it can be very wearing, I think as well, you know, because a sometimes you don't believe it, and uh, and other times you're just sick of yourself. Like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'd rather be actually doing the stop the work. Yeah than that which doesn't feel like doing all those things you know it's more like oh, I had a real good time when the uh, the early days of the lockdown because I was on my own and I was in the garage and I got a commission from the regional cultural centre in Letterkenny lovely to say that they would um, you know would I do live shows on my phone and I thought great you know so we'd done one and then I thought I'll, I'll get my garage nice to look nice set up a stage space, put some sparkly lights and that. And then as I get into it, because obviously lockdown, that magical first few weeks when there was no one around, there was no cars, there was nobody near you. Yeah. And I thought, right, okay, I've got bits of set out in the garage. So I'd spend all week creating this space. And it was just the most fun thing. It was more like a child playing. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, this like, yeah. oh, yeah, I'll make a den now kind of thing. <laughs> I'll do, yeah, if I do that poem or I can put this in it. And, and it was like that, you know, it was just really lovely state of creativity yeah. and flow. Yeah. To start at the start, um, born in Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. And then emigrated to, um, to, to Donegal then in the, was it the, 1971, 72, just that actually the very end of uh, 71, going into 72. Was it a big culture shock to uh, change? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, the thing was that my both my parents were from Donegal. Okay. And so Donegal was really home. And I've said it a few different times in interviews about that. It's like when I'd be walking down the street with my mother, say coming home from school, and we'd meet another Donegal woman and she'd end up standing talking to this woman for ages in the street you know when you're a kid and you're just yeah. <laughs> yeah. And talking they're talking they're talking and they're talking about home 
do you know, oh, you were your home and that, and, and all of the home. And I think, like, we live there, <laughs> you know, and that, but that wasn't home, it was never home. Yeah. Home was always Donegal. And, um, and her community, she'd always go visit, and there'd always be Donegal houses that we'd be visiting all around parts of Glasgow, you know. And our school was Holy Cross in Govan Hill, which was just all Donegal as well. Like, I can still remember the roll call from our classroom. Well, most of it, some I missed out. But um, most of them were Donegal names. Yeah. Do you know, there was Coyles, Boyles, Gallagher's, Doherty's. Do you know, and most, well, a lot would go back to Donegal for their summer holidays as well. As we all did, you know, like come the but used to call the Glasgow Fair Saturday. The just all Donegal, or all Glasgow Donegal people would head back to Donegal, and that's something that you kind of um, explored in your earlier work. Say the Derry boat and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. That's always about that connection between Donegal and Scotland. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I, I think part of that was a justification as well. It was, it was, it was different aspects to it. But people would say to me, uh, "Where are you from?" And I say Donegal. I say, oh, you've got a very Scottish accent. And I say, I was born in Glasgow. And they say, oh, you're Scottish. And I say, no, I'm Donegal. Do you know? Yeah. Like, it's, so it's like, and people are looking at you like, particularly people in the East Coast, but it's less, you know. Um, I suppose um, if it's Liverpool and Dublin, they'd probably get it, you know. Yeah. But yeah, like yeah. the thing about it is, I was up in Donegal the weekend. If you're in West Donegal, Gidor and all that, like a Glasgow accent is a natural accent to have in Gidor. Whereas a Dublin accent, not so much now, but there was a time, like say in the seventies, like a Glasgow accent was a local accent, okay. whereas a Dublin accent was a or a Southern accent was always guards or you know, <laughs> yeah. school teachers or something or yeah. priests. You know, it was, it was always an, it was an outsider accent. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So w- when you came back to to Donegal, it was in kind of in secondary school that you got involved in kind of punk bands and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, not I tell you, there was no punk when when I started. It was um. When I'd come over on holidays to Donegal, I had cousins who'd play in bands, and that so and my parents, they're on holidays, so they go to pubs a lot for their holidays, and we're hearing a lot of Irish pub music. Yeah, um, which bad as it was, it was live music, and it was it was really interesting, and there was electric yeah. guitars and that, and uh, the the occasional pop song played. Like and when you're young, you know, below ten around that age, you're just a pop song's a pop song, you know, you're not. So then when I went to secondary school, I mean, that could inspire me when I go back to Glasgow. Yeah. Do you know, I'd have all that and whatever other musical interests I had. So when we came back in 90, that time, start of 1972, say, um, the, my musical influences would have been, like I've really depended heavily on music because you talk about the culture shock. There was, there was a real culture shock in the sense that we were back about couple of weeks three weeks a month yeah about the 30th of january they um and we were in letter kenny and Derry was 20 miles away and bloody sunday happened oh wow and that's what you know so it was that was a real shock yeah because even though we consider or i'd consider myself being done gaul you i was still brought up with movies about the british army Saving World War Two and all these benign characters, like particularly the films of the sixties and the you know, yeah. there was chaps, you know, chaps would go in and their bomber planes and get their legs blown off, but they were decent chaps and yeah. all these decent chaps and these, you know, things like that. And I mean, we'd had from the trouble started initially. The British Army was supposed to go and defend, yeah, the Catholics from the, you know, and the, the, uh, from being burnt out, and there was that aspect to it. 
then obviously I was educated because because um, our extended family were all Republican. Well, not in a big R way, you know, but... Yeah, yeah but they, yeah, they, yeah. Were, they were Catholic, they so they and had they knew, that and leaning, they knew yeah. what the, And they knew what the British... They were just the truth of it. Yeah. The British Army yeah. were doing what the British Army was doing. But there's still that bit that you're not ready. Nobody was really ready for the fact that on a Sunday afternoon, the British Army would go and shoot dead 13 people. Yeah. Do you know? And like I met... So that was a really big shock, do you know, for everyone. Like in that Sunday... Like my cousin coming home, I was out playing, and um, I think I was actually playing with action men. And I like I remember that was at the action, like they ended up being left in a, a potato ditch or something, like yeah. a trench. I never went back to action man after that for yeah, some reason. Yeah, I don't course. know what the, the connection was. It, it was an age thing, I suppose. You're, but um, but it was like coming back and saying, turn on the television, the radio, and just the shock, the state of shock that lasted for days, weeks, months, just that because. It progressed into different things, you know, the funerals. And as a child, there was that. I mean, I suppose it's a it's a part of the different stages of, of growing. Um, as a child, I thought that this is going to get sorted. Mm-hmm. You know, they won't get away with this. Yeah, yeah. There will be justice. You can't just do that. Yeah. You know, and for me, as a child, it was really evident on the day what had happened from even the news clips, apart from hearing stories. It was really evident what had happened. And now somebody's, you know, like the cavalry will come because that's what you always think as a kid. The yeah. cavalry will arrive, reinforcements, or, you know, the UN will go in or whatever that is going to be resolved, you know. And then you suddenly think, no, this is what happens. Yeah. Denial, you know, and injustice. And then, I mean, in the locale and particularly in Derry, well, they say that, you know, like, Everyone joined the IRA in Derry that night, you know, like kind of went with yeah. a bit of exaggeration, but a large, a large yeah, degree, yeah. that so, a lot of that happened, and a lot of that happened in Donegal as well, you know, and there was really strong feelings. So that really was influential and shocking and um, dis, disillusioning, you know, about the world. There is no justice. And then at the same time, I was starting to go to s- school, like the last Christian Brothers or the Presentation Brothers in Letterkenny. The last of that, and then going into secondary school, and the vision of Catholic Ireland. Do you know that that this is 1972? Your future? What's your future? You know, there's nobody saying, "Hey, you should get into rock and roll." You know, yeah. there's, there's none of that, or, or the arts. Nobody talked about art. Yeah. So, um, it was a really oppressive time and a frightening time for me personally. Of and, course. Know, yeah. Even though I couldn't even didn't know what was going on, it was just like that. Um, but at the same time, it was also the time when you had, like, I had Jimi Hendrix, and you think, wow, yeah, no, there's a, you can suddenly come up, no, there is more to life than is being presented yeah. on the television or the radio or in my parents' life or any of the people around me. There's Jimi Hendrix, then there's the songs that there was Schools Out, yeah, was yeah. out that summer, Hawkwind's Silver Machine, there was, you know, there's oh, some yeah. really brilliant music was happening, and I was at the age where I could appreciate it. Also, I lived in a part of Letterkenny called the Old Town. And um, one day I remember hearing this motorbike kind of sound. I go out to the front gate and this guy goes past in a chopper motorbike, big chopper handlebars and uh, yeah, and long red hair flowing in the wind and a t-shirt, yellow t-shirt with um, black power t-shirt. You know, and yeah. black is beautiful or something. Then was it? And this was the old town. Yeah, you know? yeah. This yeah. is there, is it? And it, Ted Ponson was this guitar player, well-known guitar player. Not I mean, he's 
sessions, played with so many people, you know, uh, locally be Sean Keeney would have toured, but you know, and, and Mary, but all these, mm -hmm. he's toured Dolores Keane, all, yeah. you know, he's um incredible guitar player. So I remember him as a neighbor with long hair playing guitar and he did a band called The Rascals that played show band hits, not show band hits, pop hits. Yeah. But say for example, Night Thin Lizzy didn't turn up they were supposed to be playing in the Butthole Ball Buffet in 73, around that, or the end of 72. Whiskey in the Jar was in the charts. Thin Early Lizzie, on then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thin Lizzy had, a, had maybe two albums out, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two albums out of that. Beautiful albums. No, three actually out there, build on them. Beautiful albums. And we're all Thin Lizzy fans. We all went to Ball Buffet to see Thin Lizzy. And it turns out the previous night, there was no Twitter to tell you about that, <laughs> but the previous night, Eric Bell had freaked out and walked off stage oh. so the rascals played instead in the butt hall bar buffet and they played focus hocus pocus oh that's and they played they played the, the, the most amazing fucking <laughs> the set you ever saw and they like, the, the songs that they couldn't play weren't, yeah. you know they wouldn't play when they were playing colleges where they're yeah, like yeah, yeah. a really heavy set and that's the yodeling song and the flute yeah, and all yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of... Yeah. <laughs> and um, then, so they did that. And I remember saying to Ted, I said, so, so Ted, as you are, you're like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, yeah. same thing. Yeah. So Ted, who's your favourite guitar player? Do you know? And he says, oh, I don't know what it... Be. It's Segovia or Django, Django Reinhardt, you know? And I'm kind of expecting... Is it Rory Gallagher? Do you mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Segovia? You know, Django Reinhardt? So you're just... You're getting this... That, that's where you're getting exposed to kind of art... In that form, um, visual art would just be album covers. Yeah, of um, But the nourishment that you'd get from all that sustained me and inspired me. Yeah. And then in a community level, like was young kids was into you know different things and bands. So I started up a local band with a friend. Is that the, uh, the Joel the, Petrol and the Petrol Bombs? No, no. That, that's <laughs> the, the, the myth of Joel Petrol and the Petrol Bombs are funny because the first band started off as a guy uh, Hugo Devlin, who's um. A, I think the word draft champions. Oh, right. Drafts. The, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. He's the word draft champion. I don't know if he still is, but uh, that's interesting. So anyway, myself and Hugo got a band together doing Sylvia's Mother. Okay. And uh, we had two songs, Sylvia's Mother, and then um, Scarborough Fair with our own words to it, my own words to it. So I'd, so, and we entered a couple of comedy. That was it. So um, yeah, it was pretty dodgy kind of stuff. And then, <laughs> then we done a... First year in the secondary school, we we'd done another concert. We had a drummer who became the drummer because he had a drum kit, but he was a boarder in the school, so the drum kit was in Balbafee. He was in Letterkenny, so he never actually drummed with his <laughs> or, you know, but he's still in the band. And uh, so we'd done another competition in, at the school. And uh, yeah, so gr gradually you'd end up then, we got a local drummer and has downed a music shop, repair shop and television repair. We'd play out in their place and then we get a local guitar player. And that's when things really took off. It'd be like winters in garages when we're learning Rolling Stones songs. And um, yeah, it was just really a lovely, lovely thing to be doing. You know, you, you'd have the microphone, the vocal microphone, you'd be putting it into the Vox AC amp, the guitar player's amp. You know, and oh, it was just, yeah, it's just so chaotic, and you know, and is that Hemlock? Then was a different band. That was, was a, it? yeah. So that was a. So this is a, a really good time. So our first band were called um, Ambrose for Ambrose Slade. 
Oh, because so they were called that. They were called Ambrose Slade when they were skinhead band. They were Ambrose Slade. So we <laughs> called ourselves Ambrose. Our guitar player, lead guitar player, was country and Irish kind of thing. Like yeah. he'd play Apache and things like that. So mm-hmm. good. But uh, he entered us for a competition in the local, uh, I don't know what's the word. It's, I mean, it's a mental health care facility now. But at the time, yeah. it was called The Mental. Oh, right. And uh, it was it's an, it's an old asylum kind of thing. Mm-hmm, yeah. They'd have a, a competition, talent competition there. So he entered us there. Uh, and he got the name wrong. It was Ambro. So we became <laughs> Ambro. Um, and an interesting thing about that was we were Ambro. And we played in the competition. We got second in that. We developed, or we, we bet a couple of local bands and that. But when Ambro kind of broke up for a while, we joined up with this other guitar player, not guitar, guitar to play guitar, um, but he was really into progressive rock okay. and he was into yes. Yeah. So we started up a band. His band was called Fragile. Fragile. And I say his band was called Fragile. They were a totally conceptual band. They didn't actually <laughs> do anything. You know, all they existed in was scratching the name into the, the, yeah. the desk and all that. You a know. lot of those but going around. Yeah, yeah. Ambro joined with Fragile and we became Ambrogile. Ambrogile. <laughs> That's so brilliant. A very brief progressive <laughs> rock thing. And then Hemlock came then, which was, that was playing youth club hops and playing dance halls. In the summer, we'd go down West Donegal, where there'd be a lot of uh, North, young Northern people would be down on holidays. Or, like, just mass exodus from Belfast to Donegal in the summer. And um, the dances would be really good like that. We'd play down and there. We could play our full set. We're still at school. Week during the, the school term, we'd probably play relief, which was support bands to country and Irish bands. Which yeah, I was wondering fr- how yeah. you were in a, a from a punk background and then supporting uh, Philomena Begley. Yeah, it's a bit yeah, of well, a, a bit it. of a jump. Well, I mean, punk this punk still hadn't happened at this yeah. stage. Okay, yeah. it was. Um, I mean, we were doing we were doing Rory do a couple of Rory Gallagher songs, and we do Pink Floyd's Time, and we do it slower than Pink Floyd done mm-hmm. it so it was very slow yeah and we'd be clean support to see as we say Philomena Begley and it'd be local girls maybe from the factory and that would arrive there early they'd be dancing and we'd be playing ticking away the moments and they'd still be jiving to it they were almost incredible <laughs> they'd be able to jive to anything you know but it was really frustrating because we'd learn a couple of cover songs like Bass City Roller songs and pop songs which is like it was hard enough playing Rory Gallagher or bluesy stuff. Yeah. But um, at least you could go for the feel and the emotion of it. Kind of. But like when we tried to do pop, it, we sounded really woodiously bad. Yeah. We were chronic. And uh, and then when they split up was around 76. And that's when I, you know, I was into boys, into lots of different kinds of things. But it was around 76 that you start hearing about the Sex Pistols through the Musical Express. And when was the like the stiff little fingers and stuff? The stuff from Northern that, Ireland. Yeah, That's well, that later, would, is it? That would have been, that would have been later. Um, it's funny because so Joe Petro and the Petro Bombs was a band that I started up with. Me, there was no one else wanted to be a punk in Donegal at the time. So that, that was <laughs> the it. only the, punk in Donegal. There was, yeah, there was a guy called Ed McGinley. <laughs> it's a name for a show for yeah, you. There. There's a guy called Ed McGinley. He's a musician. He's got a band and he lives in Dublin. Now and he was really good. He was interested in punk. But nobody else was even interested in it at yeah. that stage, 1976-77. But when I went to London in 77, I came back, so went, wherever it was, um, uh, September, I think, went to London, and I came back at Christmas, and you'd go to the Golden Grill, which was usually country and Irish. Yeah. 
Uh, and so New Year's Eve, 77 going into 78, there was a band called Toe Jam playing and they were progressive rock. The three piece drummer would do a 15 minute solo. Do you know, they'd play Pink Floyd covers. They'd do mm-hmm, yeah. they'd progress, big guitar solos, all that. And um, so that was better than country and Irish. Yeah. So I remember going out that night and I had a zipper, zip top that I'd got actually in Kings Road and I'm kind of embarrassed about it now but it looked really good but a zipper t-shirt kind of thing lots of zips on it and I had a spiky dog collar and I had different things I mean, my mother had to fix the dog collar on me it was fittery kind of thing you know and um, so uh, anyway, she let you out yeah she let me out she was born in 1920 I've got a lovely story remind me to tell you about a story about my mother a little bit in Jimi Hendrix it was yeah. just, but, but went to the Golden Grill and there was a band playing support to Toe Jam and it was the undertones. Oh wow! Oh wow! And they were fucking brilliant. It's so good to curse, is it? Yeah, oh, yeah of course, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. The undertones were just amazing. They were really, and they were doing covers at that stage. They were doing Gloria, yeah, and Anarchy in the UK, yeah, and uh, they were amazing. I'd say so. Yeah. And what was the um, the initial push to go to London? Then just because you lived there for a time, correct? I lived there for almost five years, kind of. Yeah. And then you kind of started doing the kind of more um, theatrical kind of side of things while you were over there. Yeah. Um, well, when I was in, when I went to London, my whole thing was that I'd become a punk star or something, and you know, because there was no avenues. Yeah. And even then, as as Thin Lizzy's quoted in um, Shades of Blue Earth, they're headed for the number one hit country again. And it's always regarded that if you're going to do original music, You'd have to leave Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Do you know all that seemed to be the way of it. You know, um, Frop were progressive rock. They'd have moved. Rory Gallagher. Everyone moved to and London. I think from all over wherever you were, you went to London if you weren't in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, excuse me. And yeah. um, what happened was, I thought this was it. I'd go to London, and I moved into a squat. There was two squats right next to each other in Islington with Donegal lads. So it was like little Donegal, yeah. and um, again, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was really interesting. Because Donegal, like, and they were a bit happy. You know, there's yeah. one called Pat Ferry, God rest him now. But I remember that was at my first morning in London, five o'clock in the morning. Myself, and my friend, knocking at the door of the squat, and this guy coming down with long hair, Y fronts, and cowboy boots. Yeah. And I, thought, oh, I know this wasn't punk. I went down that weekend. Went down to um, down around Soho. There was a market. And there was a guy selling records and they had some notices up for band, people wanted for bands. And I was inquired about this guy about, I wanted to be in a punk band, you know? I said, were you? <laughs> and like, I had some punk clothes, but in this stage, I was wearing parallel boot boys. I looked like an undertone. Yeah, you yeah. know, I had a Harrington jacket on me. You know, I looked in the Doc Martens, so I looked more like a boot boy. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so that was it. I worked in the building sites, took drugs, and uh, wrote poetry. Okay. But around it was really interesting at that time because I wrote poetry in Donegal as well. Was there was John Cooper Clark? Yeah, yeah. So poetry was more, and Patty Smith, like I knew about Patty Smith and Donegal, yeah. but when I went to London, it was John Cooper Clark as well. So it was that notion of performance poetry. Yes, yeah. And then Linton Quizzy Johnson. Oh, yeah. later on you know mm-hmm. so it was that whole really vibrant stuff so that's when 
and the thing as well was um, finding musicians that had the same commitment like the bands in Letter Kennedy that wanted to do their leave insert and all that Yeah. so yeah. I kind of wanted to be just, so it felt like performance poetry I could do that by myself but there was no gigs at that stage for that sort of thing um, and I was floundering around the place experimenting with things and um, yeah long story lots of things happened in between because uh, yeah I, mean, I can divert I joined the Hare Krishnas for eight months oh yeah you can go there if you want kind of thing <laughs> I was about to join. I met the, these Rasta. I got into Rasta for a while, you know. Was under, yeah. So I was hanging around the Rastas. And because uh, punk was all about reggae music, really. From mm-hmm. you want to, when like, it started, yeah. And that was really big in London at the time. <laughs> lots of fantastic reggae music. And the Royal Rasas, lots of bands that come straight from Jamaica. And, and, yeah. and it was just really beautiful reggae music. We lived in North London and East London. So you heard the best uh, music. But uh, I came back to Letterkenny again. And, it all happens in Letterkenny. Come back to Letterkenny in a pub, look out the window at the folk festival, two Rastas go walking past. I, what the fuck? Go out, <laughs> hey, you know, and start talking. And it turns out that they're from a band, the Steel and Skin band, and who I meet, we have good fun. We end, I meet them up in London again. And myself and this guy, Finbar Bravo, brilliant musician, brilliant pan player. Oh, but, yeah. Um, but really incredible pan player, yeah. one of the best ones. Also drummer and that, and uh, they had mixed African music and Caribbean music. But um, me and him would, 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 I suppose, a few joints yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, talk about spiritual matters and that, and, and that Rasta way of, well, he wasn't Rasta, but it was that sense of, you know. He was that kind of inclined. That kind of spiritual kind of, um, we're smoking dope. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we, um, we had this kind of notion that we'd go to Trinidad, we'd go back to Trinidad. Oh, right. <laughs> and and uh, go up the mountains. And um, I would learn to play pan. Because I'd go out, when they'd be doing gigs, I'd go out with them as well. Because I was used to being a plasterer's labourer. So I was mm. really good at carrying 40 gal- gallon drums and things like yeah. that. But anyway, yeah, I went to school, so I couldn't believe my last thing. This is great, you know. My life is in a really nice creative space. Because like, yeah, yeah you know, but it felt like that. It felt like doors were opening to me. Yeah, but, but then the spiritual aspect of it, I thought, yeah, this is because of I've got a spiritual attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, because my life is changing in that sense. So then I go into a Hare Krishna restaurant one day, start talking to this guy who's into music and starting. And, and this was a time when a lot of punks was into, like polystyrene was into Hare Krishnas at that stage so it was a generational shift within the Hare Krishnas okay and uh, the guy says to me he says yeah man you'd like back to Vedanta Manor you know please George Harrison yeah, come there and play some music chill out and uh, so that was a whole other adventure for yeah. eight months kind of thing yeah. you know shaved head and that and uh, yeah which opened me up to Indian modal music and different mm-hmm. things like that yeah so sorry, yeah, I, I go on a bit when I get started. This kind of you have to start at the beginning. You have to go through to the ending of it. Kind of thing, yeah, of well, we need a basis for everything else yeah, that comes yeah, afterwards. Yeah. Like, and then you, so you ended up performance theatre and stuff like that, and performance poetry, and then you landed back in Dublin, and then you were on Grafton Street for for yeah. a, a, a long time. Yeah, it's funny. There was a guy who's Harry Christian was called Jai Govinda who was, they, they actually had a Hare Krishna theatre company, and which was really interesting. This guy was an incredibly creative actor. And uh, 
he left around the same time as me kind of thing black guy and um brilliant fucking british accent you know robber yeah, yeah. and uh he can do really brilliant presence incredible performer and uh he'd started busking doing street down in covent garden covent garden hadn't been organized legitimized yet or that whole and the, the the fame of the reputation of covent garden yeah and he used to do um be craft work and things like that and he would do robotics robotics was new as well and he'd do a robotic yeah no one's doing robotics it was just all new and he'd do robotics with a white face yeah and it was incredible and just mind-blowing the fact that it was also new and people really loved it yeah so at the same time alternative cabaret was happening so there was live poets there was there was a whole uh, political response to margaret thatcher there was really wild feminist acts like um uh cunning stunts and that you know we're trying out different things there was bands like pookie snackenberger who became stomp don't you remember stomp they're a percussion band that and the flying pickets who subsequently had a number one hit you know so there was just it was really happening alternative cabaret circuit mm -hmm. when people yeah. were experimenting and stuff so i i was part of a committee was putting on gigs i started doing stand up there with poetry and with the white face that this guy had taught me decided that i'd go back to dublin went busking in grafton street was this under grafton street your persona the zen McGonagall. Yeah, Zen McGonagall. I used to write poetry kind of thing as well, and I'd be looking for personas like that, and um, I'd do kind of little fanzine poetry kind of things to justify being alive to myself. Kind of <laughs> and um, very bad poetry. And then I, yeah, I arrived over in Dublin, and I thought I'd go busking. I had a tailcoat and bowie baggy trousers and a white face, and I went to Dame Street. I thought, this is. Oh, bus. There's lots of people here, lots of, but there's all traffic. It was buses. It was the worst spot. A total neophyte. Nobody, <laughs> only the stupidest person would, would think about busking there. Yeah. Particularly when you're doing poetry. You know, yeah. It's <laughs> like, me doing, and um, so I'm there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the only one to stop was this little traveler girl. And I'm doing these poems influenced by my lifestyle and Jack Kerouac. You know, I'd be, be an Irish kind of Jack I'd be kind of like, um, uh, was it um can you see the federal agents hidden in the branches of the cherry tree some mornings that tree is like a circus there's a half brown loaf in a plastic bag somewhere i would like the chicadas to have it stuff like a mad shit you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you could actually pull off when you're doing an alternative cabaret crowd yeah, yeah. but here i am in dublin and dame street with buses going by and one little traveler girl looking at me nodding her head in agreement when i say can you see the federal agents hidden in the branch and she's nodding her head and she keeps putting money into the the, the hat oh, so, so every poem i'd finish she'd put money in and she, like a couple of so she was she was my first audience really not yeah. proper audience you know that was just for me wasn't the part of it yeah and yeah. she stayed and the fact that she held me in that because otherwise i would have given up yeah <clears throat> she held the space held me in a space long enough for a street trader this was in the time when the street traders used to get run by the guards they didn't have legitimate okay spot, yeah so that the jewelry sellers and all that and this that traveler girl held me in place long enough for the street trader to come past and say you're in the wrong place you should go to henry street grafton street wasn't even pedestrianized then so yeah. i went to henry street and um i made 20 quid doing a show 
And wow. it was like, that was it. That, that was my, I thought, wow, that means I'm a professional. Do you know, I'm yeah. a professional performer. I can make a living. Yeah. 20 quid is a lot of money in the 80s as well. Yeah. In 82, 82, yeah. Yeah. That's great. And what was Dublin like at that time? It was, was it really interesting, actually, because yeah. it was those things, um, it was, particularly coming from London, uh, it was very friendly. And uh, there was a lot of different things going on, you know. Um, it was very friendly. McDade's part, there's a lot of rough pubs, rough in the city, of good rough, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. old style pubs. A lot of old Dublin types still around, you know, it still had this vestige. And the funny, because I went to the O'Casey plays during the Galway Arts Festival. Yeah. And there's a lot of that really poetic language and playfulness with language. People say beautiful things, there was that. Yeah. Very friendly. Um, I wasn't there long. Um, Henry Street was brilliant because people would be they'd gather in crowds and the guards would come to move you on and uh, I, mean, I remember going over, me going over to the guard of car him where the window rolled down calls me over I'm standing at the guard of car talking to him and he says do you see what's happening now? I says what? he says look over and the crowd is putting money into my hat and he says see if we put you up against the wall now they'd be throwing fibers <laughs> <in that." laughs> and it was like that it was just the north side it was obviously that particular you know like course, yeah. leave me alone you know and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then Grafton Street became pedestrianised and that was really exciting there was just so many characters around it yeah. drinking McDade's old which was still the vestige of the Kavna and Brenda Behan and all that you know there's mm-hmm. lots of that yeah. literary kind of Dublin kind of well drunken literary Dublin yes. was still there there was lots of poets there was interesting things happening musically um, and politically. It was a really interesting time politically as well because you had the amendment, the, you know, the, um, uh, the, the amendment that were just after repealing a couple of years ago. That amendment came in in 1983, I think. So it was, that was all going on at that time. Um, there, was, there was gay rights was happening um, and it wasn't, I mean, that went in the first march because we were, I quickly joined this group, the, the Grapevine Arts Centre that was quite radical in, in, in many ways. And uh, I remember we went on the first, it was a gay rights, somebody get killed in Fairview, I think it was at that time. But it was a gay rights march, that counts as the first pride march. In okay. It. But it wasn't really a pride march, it was more gay rights. Yeah. And it was more like, with David Norris and, uh, and it was nearly stuff. and it was it was just you had to go in it just for solidarity yeah, to show that you were with yeah. you know and uh, so it was like that and we're a bit self-conscious as well kind of thing and it was funny because there was lots of gay men who didn't go in the parade as well because it would have been really dangerous yeah. of course yeah, you know? yeah. sure it was still illegal at that stage it was illegal well. as yeah. well yeah I mean it's mad to think politically where Ireland was at that stage I, mean, I think it was was it in the 90s that uh, up to the 90s I think it was 94 legal. I think yeah. it was when it but was also, it was legal for rape within marriage at that stage Jesus you know up to that yeah it just it was so yeah so it was very interesting at that time and other things had happened like there was a TV club which is called the TV club which was reggae bands had played Dennis Desmond from MCD organised it she'd end up with reggae acts had come over every two weeks to play there Oh, wonderful! And then there'd be there'd be um a DJ for the weekend between. Yeah. So I, I used to get a gig toasting there. <laughs> I should be up in the balcony, and I think nobody's seen Spliff and my friend, this guy, the operator, um, yeah. Liam, 
and so you'd just be doing it'd be all dub records yeah oh, and uh, sounds, oh, sounds it, just, great. It, was, it was great yeah. and an echo chamber kind of thing you'd be like, <laughs> yeah. brilliant you'd sing a bit of a melody you know? uh-huh. she loves you yeah yeah <laughs> Baltimore playing in the background or yeah. something to be. so yes yeah, so it was creatively it was very very exciting particularly for me with the Great Vine Art Centre as well there was yeah it was and I grew hoarse um, drinking McDade's so now I had money a bit more and McDade's would do slate for buskers so you'd get free drink you know you'd put your name down oh, so not you get okay. free drink but you could you know if you didn't have cash you could put it on and, tab and you put it on tab yeah kind of thing, uh, ah that's great for all the buskers had that kind of thing so and McDade's back in the day but um so drinking smoking cigarettes and partying I went hoarse yeah. from shouting in the pub and so I couldn't do my poetry and there was a guy there who was from Scotland, from Castlemont, used to do Bowie covers. So I mimed, as I must like, I'm glad there wasn't so much video evidence. Of it. <laughs> I must have been the worst mime in the world, but I didn't know that. Thank God I didn't know yeah, it. Yeah. So I done it. So I'm, um, you know, be doing five years pushing through the market square, you know, and I'd be doing all this very literal mime stuff and Velvet Underground, Femme Fatale, really good stuff. So that got me to the next stage. So now I'm a mime artist. Yes. And uh, as I was on my way to Henry Street to Bosque, Grafton Street still wasn't pedestrianised. Some of the street sellers and the newspapers say, how you doing, Charlie? Because I had the baggy trousers and the tailcoat, yeah. you know, morning jacket was actually. How you now, Charlie? Ah, Charlie. Hey. So they all started to call me Charlie. And um, so I'd do the Charlie Chaplin walk for the crack <laughs> yeah. and start to integrate that into it as well. And then I got a copy of Charlie Chaplin's My Life bought a bowler hat and a cane Nicky the musician had gone away so I started to do Charlie Chaplin at the same time as Grafton Street became pedestrianised and so so for creatively for me it was a time of evolution yeah. and trying out things that I had I never thought at any stage that I would be doing Charlie Chaplin but when I went that direction A I had no videos to study so you're studying from stills and from memory but you realise what a great memory of Chaplin films there was, you know, and uh, intuitively picked up so much Chaplin stuff. Yeah. And immediately had to start writing sketches that would be long enough that would be able to stop an audience in the street, entertain them for a while, and that they would pay for it. Yeah. So it was just very basic performance skills that you'd have to learn. Then, as I say, with Grapevine Art Centre, started collaborating with people. And um, and doing late night cabaret again with my poetry, and experimenting lot just in lots of ways. So it was a very very creative time for me. And how did you transport then from Grafton Street in Dublin, then all the way over to Barna in the West Coast here? Well, um, in 1983, with the Great Fine Art Centre, I'd done my first national tour. Um, so that's. 40 years ago this year since I first toured nationally in an old Volkswagen van and we were doing a kids show called The Time Cupboard. It was a great adventure. Like we went everywhere. We're in the north. We're in, we played Belfast in 1983 and Loyalist Estates. I see, that's, well, that sounds very dramatic actually. We played in two Loyalist Estates off the Shankill Road which was very dramatic as well because you're going into this estate with Loyalist murals in a van, Volkswagen van. 
was it Irish with, Ridge with Dublin registration. Yeah, Jesus, and apart from that, it was a happy van. It was like a yellow Volkswagen, yeah. red. You know, it was very conspicuous. And um, but at the same time, we were treated really, really well and really nicely and warmly and welcomed and appreciated. You know, which yeah, and this was nineteen eighty three was dangerous time to be going. You no, know, you stayed. You didn't go where you weren't supposed to go. I can yeah. imagine, yeah. You know? um, and uh, so there was that, and there was just lots of adventures that we'd have in the van. You know, we'd stay on the road sometimes. We had no place to stay. We'd rather than go back to Dublin, so we'd end up coming down to Canvara and oh, really? crashing on floors. And yeah, you know, who, you, who's floor you were crashing on down here? We cr- actually, I think one time we crashed in Jackie Daly's floor. Okay, yeah. Um, when he wasn't there, it was a, a girlfriend of his. Yeah, was minding the house. And our van driver was from America as well, and it's just oh, yeah. seen as the yeah, better be careful what I say here. But anyway, we arrived at the house late one night, and we ended up yeah, yeah. I think it was only one night or maybe two nights was crashed there, and um, yeah, a few floors and floors in in Galway and things like that, and yeah, it was it was a lovely time. So that I got the bug then for the for the turn. Yeah, mm. well, you know all about that for the, of, of about, about what now the touring. Oh, touring. Yeah. Oh, it's great crack. Right. I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> and what were you playing when you were touring? I, I, I was playing banjo in a, in a band in the States. Right. And, uh, but I was like, it was, I was 20, it was, it was during my 20s when, when we were at it. And it was the perfect thing for me. It was bread and butter. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. Visited nearly every state bar, like five or six of them, played in all of them. And I can go to sleep at 5 a.m. and wake up at 9 and be completely fine and do that for months. Yeah. And uh, these days, I don't think I could do that anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was tremendous fun. It's the way to see the world, isn't it? It really and is, it's yeah. Just, it's just, yeah, it's a different... And you connect with everyone, too. It's yeah. like, there's, there's there's a great connection in that way because you're... It's like you're bringing sort of an element of sort of excitement to, 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 to the area you go to. Yeah. And uh, that's a great way to engage with, with people, I find. Yeah, and the chaos and the adventures as and well. And that as well, yes. It, it's all <laughs> mad stuff happens as well. It kind of oh yeah, things go wrong. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and not not very much money. <laughs> and not very much money. Yeah, yeah. which leads to more things. Go, the improvisation. Exactly. Like that. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. And, and yeah, like yeah, totally hitching and things like that as well. Oh, that was yeah. another thing that was really common around the eighties in Ireland was you'd hitch everywhere. Yeah, of course, because there wasn't a proper service. Yeah, yeah, and people just done it. Which yeah. meant, like, which, what happened then was in the, I started to, like, I love the west of Ireland. And so I'd naturally, when the summer would come, I'd want to go west. And um, I'd I'd hitch. And you go to Wally Clancy Week or whatever it was. And you'd be hitching somewhere and you'd be going, like, say, from Galway to Clare or Galway to Cork. And you'd be on the road and somebody pull up. And you get in the car, and they they be going to Clare or East West Clare. So you say, "Oh, I'll go to West Clare." Yeah. So you just go sometimes where the car was going. Yeah, yeah of course. And yeah. it would be like a whole adventure there, kind of thing, you know. And the country was mad and wilder. Oh, I'd I say think it was very wild. I think at, the, at the, that particular time, I um, used to hitch a good bit up till about maybe six or seven years ago and every time yeah. you get picked up they just go geez you don't see anybody hitching anymore yeah, yeah that was yeah, the first yeah, thing yeah, they'd yeah. always yeah. say always you know? in my early 20s was that the whole time yeah yeah. yeah. and I suppose you pick up a younger person easier you would yeah so then there's something yeah 
yeah, you'd be frightened of older people, kind of thing, like myself. Like, like <laughs> I know that myself. Is like, yeah, when I, times that I did have to hitch, in later years, yeah, I found people kind of giving you a wide berth. <laughs> yeah. They never pick you up in the rain either because they don't want someone wet in the yeah, car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you transported then over to Barna and stuff like that, you got involved in Machnus early on. Well, I'd be I'd go to Galway for the summers and then I'd go back to to Dublin, Dublin in the winter and that and that until 1986 and I'd kind of I'd had enough like pain rent and difficulty all that stuff I, it wasn't working right with me and it was fun to drink of course and uh, so I got, I, philosophically I thought the best thing to do is like the Woody Guthrie way and to um, and the Shanachie way really mm-hmm. just stay on the road the whole time yeah and just arrive you're welcome at, at the start of the, the weekend yeah. and you leave on a Monday and go just go like that, you know, yeah. which was great for the summer. It really worked. Yeah, and I slept in hay sheds and had lots of adventures like that. And I was, I was very familiar with Galway because that would be, I had so many friends in Galway, and Galway was pure mad and them. It was brilliant. Oh, I can imagine. So um, the uh, until winter came and it was, I decided to stay in Galway, and that was just at the point where uh, Muckness were starting in '86, and uh, yeah, then it was the whole Muckness adventure which was something totally new because th- there was nothing like that happening anywhere. What is Muckness like Muckness, for um Well, for people, people who Muckness, Muck, the name Muckness um, means uh, exuberant joy, but a particular kind of joy that when calves are locked up, you know, young cows is locked up for the winter and, and fed in sheds and barns, when they're let out in the spring, they go mad. Yeah. And they smell of grass, and they start to dance, and they leap up and down. So it's that's as muckness is Irish word for that 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 level of joy yeah. and exuberance. I so, love that. Uh, muckness was a group that was formed by four people at the time: Porig Brannock, Ollie Jennings, later famous the Arts Festival and, yeah. and Saw Doctors. Well, he'd already been organising the Arts Festival at that stage, as had Porig Brannock had been a, a large part of it as well. Uh, Peter Salmon. Who I knew for years as well as a a, a performer yeah. director and Tom Conroy, a visual artist who works mostly in movies now, but they started a, a community arts group. They got an old shed down in the fisheries field, uh, very run down shed uh, from the college. They were all alumni of the college, and uh, they started out this community group. It's kind and, of still uh, it's kind of traditional beating heart is, is fishery field. Yeah, it's still yeah, yeah, and that's where they're still located. And yeah. and, 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 um, and at that time as well, not just in Gold, but everywhere, the arts were basically subsidised by employment schemes, like really, that yeah. grapevine tour that I talked about. We were on an, a youth employment scheme, so that was the way that performers were kind of paid. Yeah, they were get, taken off the dole, and uh, oh, and this, it was. So it was getting everybody off the dole. But at that stage, who was on the dole in Galway? There'd be people like... Fucking um, everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, everyone. Yeah, it was, there, there was no work. There was a, and, uh, but there was the Wall Brothers. Ah, yeah. Stunning. There was Leo Moran out of the Saw Doctors. Do you know? The Saw were just starting off. So yeah. these bands were just starting off at the time, pretty much, you know. There was Brendan O'Regan. There was, there was just really a creative bunch that were brought together. And... Um, yeah, it was fantastic and it was all really innovative and it was figuring out how to do these things. There was great ideas and it was very inspired by 
El Comedians, the Spanish company, or Footsparn as well. Uh, so it was inspired by these great companies, but there was no Irish equivalent, and there was a lot of experimentation, and, oh, we have a dragon. Yeah. How do you make a dragon? And so there's bits of timber in it, and there's, so like, the materials would be really heavy, so there was um, a lot of challenges. Um, but at the same time, there was an excitement that was in Galway, and it was genuine the community, like when it come to the Arts Festival Parade and that, loads of people would be everybody there was no differentiation between uh, oh i'm an artist and no it was a, yeah, yeah everybody was yeah. in the parade kind of thing it was like yeah ah that's wonderful yeah, yeah. i'd say mary cochran was probably knocking around galway at that time and she stuff had as well. just left a, a couple of years she was still knocking around a bit but um around the muckness time she got she lived in dublin last week i'd done a i'd done a couple things i'd done a a show when she went to, to olympia mary had a residency in the bag it in and it was taken off really really well and I think Dennis Desmond of MCD was managing her and somebody cancelled in the Olympia and there was a week free in the Olympia oh nice and they said, she said to Mary would you do a week in the Olympia which was a big step up and Mary uh, uh, and Eric Visser her producer really beautiful man as well he, uh, they came up to me in the street in Grafton Street and says, would I be into doing something as part of that show? So at the start of the night, what had happened was the band had come on and they'd play this kind of carnival music and I'd come on wearing a big red wig, wearing one of Mary's dresses with two balloons <laughs> and uh, the audience would go mad. Sully kind of noticed, that's not Mary, you know? <laughs> and uh, and then, um, then I'd lie in a chaise long like, and uh, there'd be a blackout. And when the lights came back up again, it'd be Mary in my <laughs> place and I'd have gone. And then halfway through, I'd come up from the back of the hall as Charlie Chaplin and climb up on the stage. And me and Mary would tango. And we'd just hold tango, you know, like, ain't nobody's business what I do. Tango, and we'd all choreograph. And at the end of it, she'd spin me around, kick me in the arse and send me flying into the orchestra pit <laughs> and That's then I'd great. crawl out so it was like that and then at the very end I'd come on again for the encore like I'd come on with a bunch of like as Mary yeah and Mary was brilliant she didn't mind taking the piss out of herself yeah yeah. you know and is that how you kind of end up in that uh, Neil Jordan film then no I know how, well, yeah I know how I ended up what, what, it was brilliant that Mary was in that but it was the Susie Figgis who was the casting director wanted to get away from the usual suspects and there wasn't so many young actors or actors in Dublin so they'd done a casting in Galway and they told Mockness about it as well so I went to that and I got a call back went up to Dublin and Pori Brannock was in it as well but I think he got cut from it but so I get it started off as two days work as an extra when they were filming in Limerick actually oh was it Limerick that it was Limerick they started and the thing about it was was for those who don't know it's a film called High Spirits by Neil Jordan Neil was an emerging filmmaker at the time it was a big budget film at the time it was over a million you <laughs> it was regarded as really big money a crazy cast in it that was mad big. cast like yeah. Daryl Hannah and Liam Neeson Peter O'Toole Peter O'Toole and 
there's a, there's a, there's a couple of Peter Gallagher who was in Sex Lies and videotapes and the guy out of Steve Gutenberg. Steve Gutenberg out of Do you know Mahoney from Police Academy. Police Academy. Yeah. And I've never seen Beverly D'Angelo. You know? Beverly D'Angelo, who's Nicole Miner's daughter, I think as well. There's okay. Just, there's lots, lots of really good. And oh, from oh from oh what do you call it? Faulty Tours. Sorry, my 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 memory's gone. If you'd look at the trailer on YouTube, yeah, yeah. you can see nearly every person in it. Which you'd one recognize from Vault Towers? Who from Vault Towers? Oh, what do you call her? Connie Booth. Connie Booth. Okay. Yeah, Connie Booth. She's brilliant. No, oh, now there was really brilliant, nice people there, and um, but so I got there. So I ended up. I just got two days work as a special extra. Yeah. Went down to Limerick, and um, staying in Jury's Hotel. That was the poshest hotel in Limerick at the time <laughs> at Jerry's by the river and uh, still is <laughs> and yeah and uh, like, like, the, the best thing about that was like my, my first morning was like there's all these people it was filmed in a place called was it uh, not Nocto somewhere outside Limerick in this castle up on top of a hill and there's lots of local people's kind of gathered to see because Peter told all these famous people's in mm -hmm. it and uh, so the first morning I'm there and uh, or everybody else is in set I was, wasn't wanted until later and there was this white Rolls Royce who's been used in one of the scenes. So rather than getting another taxi or, or part of the crew transport to bring me out, because they'd already done runs to bring everybody all out, they said, well, the Rolls Royce is going out anyway. You're going with the Rolls Royce kind of thing. So like out of all the big stars, I'm the one who arrives in the white Rolls Royce. <laughs> you know, like... Peter O'Toole arrived in a Mercedes. This guy's arrived in a white rose. He must be bigger than often. So it was like, there's things, that, funny things. That, and, um, but there was no interior in that. It was all exterior shots. Okay. I was supposed to do two days. And then Neil says, no, I want you to stay. Mm -hmm. My character didn't have a name. So Peter O'Toole refers to me as Little John. Oh. as was the gatekeeper. So there's one scene, exterior oh. scene, where you can see it on YouTube, where... um. Peter pushes Mary, it was called Katie. It was a pulley system. We're trying to haunt the Americans. Donald McCann was in it as well. Like, oh, I mean, talk about the America, but like Donald McCann. Yeah. And um, Tom Hickey. Uh, I mean, that was the greatest privilege was to be with those guys. But so, and Mary, of course. But Mary, so Peter Toole were up on top of this tour on a scaffolding to work a pulley system that will fly Mary across in front of a tower window to scare these people. So Peter Till pushes Mary away and he says, fly away, Katie. And then he pushes me and he says, fly away, little John. <laughs> and uh, Peter Till was a, was a gent, serious hero yeah. of mine since I was yeah. a kid, you know. So like, that's about, of all the things in the world, that's, I suppose, my best moment <laughs> that's great it's <laughs> a great Peter moment said my name but, um, <laughs> and he was really beautiful and kind and generous yeah, and I can imagine there was so I ended up with two weeks work there yeah. and at the end of that there was a scene it was on my birthday it was in November we're filming and there's a scene where the people come out of the pub and the and the assistant director turns to me and he says uh, little John we, we don't you're, you're finished now you can go and Peter's or Neil says, no, 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 he's in this scene. He says, well, he's not. He says, yeah, he's in the scene now. I want him to come. <laughs> so I go into the, I come out of the pub with everybody else. The fact that I came out of the pub meant that I had to be in the pub. Uh... And there was no interior stuff done. There was a shell of a castle. Yeah. So it meant that I had to go to Shepperton. Nice. 
for six weeks nice <laughs> and, um, and then the, the adventures there was great because myself and Mary both been fond of drink with great adventures they tried the, the product the producers were a bit tight I can see it now and um yeah, it's a long time ago. They will get you now. Especially the assistant producer, can, when, the, when the assistant wrote down, says, have you got mates in London? I says, yeah. This is he knew that was going on. I didn't know. He says, yeah. could you stay with him, Matt? Good mates. I says, yeah, I could, yeah. So they didn't get me accommodation. Yeah. Right. So that was okay. So we went to stay with a friend, stayed in his flat. It was a small flat in Camden. Wasn't really working out. My partner at the time was over with me. She had opened up a squat in Camberwell. Yeah. The previous year they were so, so we ended up moving down to the squat in Camberwell. Um and uh so this Mercedes would come and pick me up from the squat at seven <laughs> o'clock every morning and it turns out I had other friends called the Seven Kevins, this band were living in the squats around the corner. So we had like and I was getting paid daily whack of money. It was just the best time in the world. And the Mercedes had dropped me off every evening outside the squat as well. And these Camberwell Rastas would be looking like, who the fuck's their man? Like, <laughs> gets dropped off every evening. So it was, yeah, lots of adventures like that. Yeah. So, pivoting back to your own work, um, when I started off the show, I said you were prolific. And kind of looking from when you started off writing your own one-man shows. Right. It's nearly nearly every year or every second year yeah. that you're writing yeah. your own. So coming from your poetry background, as you're saying, you know, you could enjoy being the uh, the center point in the show when it was just you, you producing yeah. everything and controlling everything, and that kind of seems to have leaked into your work because yeah. going forward, it, it's it's mainly you with people with collaborators and stuff yeah. like that. And the first one that started off that that was the Derry Boat, and yeah. this was kind of part of like a, this Donegal trilogy, correct? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It was what happened was, it's pretty much the band thing again. Was I worked with the Puka Children's Theatre or the Great Venn? I worked in theatre shows. Yeah, and it was the same thing as a band. Like you'd put your heart and your soul into this show. I would do a run, and then that was it. It was over. You were back, mm-hmm. unable to earn a living. So it was kind of thing about an impairment, and um, so I done it kind of it was kind of an aim that I tried to do. But then what happened really, the big significant thing for me was, um, like as I say, I was fond of the drink, and the lifestyle. I was I get sober, so that just meant that I had more time and more energy and more focus to actually, and and less. Listen, I'm not talking. This is just about me personally. Yeah, of course. Less bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I'd course. be bullshitting and talking about all the work that I'd want to do and have great ideas, but I wouldn't carry anything through. You, know, well, occasionally I would, but there'd be a desperation about it. I'd be doing street shows, and it's some great shows, I think, but there'd still be a desperation, and um, so it would change things dramatically when I when I stopped uh, sm- uh, smoking dope and um, getting drunk. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, that was a big change. So then, then um, I'd done kids shows in the Galway Arts Festival, and then I started smoking dope again, and uh, that was interesting as well. Just That's to Galway see, for see, you. <laughs> seeing how th- how it's like doing it that way. Does that work? <laughs> and uh, trying every way which I can to make that work, um, <laughs> yeah. but it didn't really work. And um, and I had some done interesting things. I'd done a show in Marseille at that time 
with a sculptor and yeah it's got good adventures but it just wasn't it was only until 1998 when I was, I'd been sober for a couple of years again kind of thing and uh, that I'd um, I'd done the dairy boat and uh, we'd done it for the Erigal Arts Festival no, yeah in Donegal and it it was funny it took off like it worked really well that festival then we'd done there was a fringe festival in Galway that year not the this fringe now but we've done it there and it was a show here a show there and it was just it, it was a good show but it just wasn't going anywhere and then um, we Mike Diskin booked us for two weeks in the studio in the town hall and a guy came to see us in the studio in the town hall and he uh, he told someone else and we ended up going to Washington DC oh, wow. with a dairy boat and playing in a thousand seater for five weeks I think. Wow. Um in a thousand seater in Washington DC. The problem was was that it was a thousand seater, but I think the biggest crowd we played to was about hundred and twenty. Mm-hmm. And one night I think we played to ten. <laughs> and Fridays and Saturdays you do two shows. Um, I shouldn't be tell, exposing all this but the thing about it was was that Kevin Duffy was the musician at that stage Fergal Gallagher had done the music but as a guy Kevin Duffy was doing the music at that stage like, like we get so tight we got really the show was good before but it got really fucking super tight and um, and then things happened like we got a good review in the Washington Post and then I got nominated for a Helen Hayes Award which is like a Tony's yeah, oh, nice. so it just meant that when we came back to Ireland, Mike Diskin says would f- start phoning up theatres and said this show, you know, is really that the whole Irish about like it's you like it in America. Yeah. So and so we ended up with gigs there. Then somebody saw it from Scotland says we should contact. We ended up with three gigs in Scotland, and it sold out. Yeah, we wow. never played because of the title, the Dairy Boat, which at one stage I was thinking of calling it Twenty First Century Gale. <laughs> which if I'd have called it that nobody would have fucking went to it. but because he called it the Dairy Boat it started selling out places they brought us back for other gigs we went to the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow it sold out before they'd started doing the publicity Wow! they just had the title up because mm-hmm. people knew the story and because Donegal people was telling them in Glasgow so we ended up like that at, yeah, yeah. It's, and then so that gave me the momentum to get into my habit of like a farmer really trying to and you Part of the necessity as well, you know, like it's like you do a tour, you have to write a new show. So, and then it became a creative habit, and became a solution to all my problems. Was that if I don't know what to do, I write a show. Yeah, excuse me. Well, like when you say it becomes a habit, the Dairy Boat was around nineteen ninety eight. Then the Ballad of Jack Kettle two thousand. Don de Esther Jesus. The one in between was dead on. Dead on. Well, see, I've a list of stuff that you have, but when I go through your social media yeah, yeah. there's different shows here as well yeah, so yeah, like yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah, so yeah, many yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. then you've done this to Jesus Fahey Country and Irish Salt of the Earth and then Rural Electric that was the second part of the kind of Donegal trilogy yeah yeah was it the second part yeah well they were all Country and Irish Donegal they were all actually nearly all of those shows was Donegal a couple of them was Galway kind of based but there was Country and Irish which was more of the same, which was about jazz and dairy during World War Two. It was about a Donegal farmer. You know, when you, you respond to things like the way that sometimes RTE hijacks the narrative 
of the nation yeah. and says this is Ireland and this is who we are now. and you think like, well, wait a minute during World War Two, there was jazz in Derry mm-hmm. because the the Luftwaffe couldn't reach couldn't bomb Derry it was out of reach so you ended up there was dances happening in Derry there was marines were all based in Derry getting ready for D-Day yeah you had this whole cultural thing happening in Derry that was quite exuberant mm-hmm. and you had the V records as they were called famous jazz musician from Derry Gay McIntyre his father played in a band came home with a V record of Benny Goodman so I got into this whole notion about you could be a farmer in Donegal and be exposed to jazz <laughs> in 19 you know so I, I explored that whole notion yeah. and brought it into contemporary times and the fact that Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald played in Derry during World War II wow. you know, and you find out these things and you know that's really exciting and then so you could have a farmer in Donegal who has a son the farmer's a jazz man his son's into Dostoevsky but they're farmers you know, so you're just playing with stereotypes so that was the kind of follow up one of that yeah and then there's rural electric yeah was, yeah and that's about that. like the uh, the last parishes to get the yeah. electric in the 50s yeah. or whatever and about uh, about um, uh, a, fa- a music fan as well a rock and roll fan the one that really stood out to me and um, you you mentioned actually the name of it earlier was the mental yeah and even the story of you'll have to pronounce this gentleman's name but joseph magrina yeah that's correct yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, that's the the concept of the if if you want to explain the concept maybe of the play and then who joseph was well um when i done the show the ballad jack kettle which was about two punks from donegal who go to new york and uh, one of them gets shot and killed and the other one brings his friend's ashes back to Donegal to put them in an old railway line. So that was the plot of the story. And uh, there was a scene in that that reminds them when your guy remembers them as two young men and they walk up past St Connell's, which was the, the asylum, and they shout... You'll never fucking get us, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that was to the year two thousand, and then in two thousand and five, I was commissioned by Axis Ballymun and the HSE to do a play about St Connell's, and I thought, wow, the guy who said who survived the New York situation. Uh, uh, what about that line that he says you'll never fucking get us if he ends up as a resident in St Connell's if it's a kind of coming home from yeah. he's actually glad to be there because he breaks down in New York oh yeah and uh, he has a breakdown listen to Mink DeVille uh, and so he ends up It's he's rescued from New York from Alphabet City and brought back to St Connell's and while he's there, he discovers the story of Joseph uh, Nagrina, Magrina, who was the Irish language poet who spent the last 40, 50 years, I think, of, of his life in St. Connell's. Uh, Joseph had, had translated The Heart of Darkness into Irish in the 1930s. Oh, wow. So... Uh, Apocalypse Night and the, the, that, that Conrad's st- story yeah. uh, Joseph Conrad's story that was uh, the, the basis of Apocalypse Night yeah. but, um, and he'd, he'd 
so I was fascinated myself. I'd met him. Oh, did you? No, yeah? I didn't. Met him. I'd saw him once. Some I'd been up there, and somebody says, "That's that's um," and they called him Joe Green up there, and in Ranafast he was often called Joe Green as well. But uh, he, I met someone else in, from Donegal, who we were talking, and there's a book Movalach Fane, and uh, that Joseph had wrote. It had never been translated to English, but this friend of mine had translated it into English. It was never published. So he gave me that. I couldn't read the Irish of it. And uh, it was just the most incredible book. You know, like it's things like that Kerouac would have been writing. Obviously, we're not talking about black jazz clubs. Yeah, yeah. of course. But um, we're, um, it hasn't got the, all the Americana stuff, but the attitude and the, the adventures were just very similar and the style of writing writing yeah. about tramping uh, and that and and uh obviously had difficulties with mental health but some incredible things about like at one situation he's in london and he, he ends up doing a, sp a talk which for he talked it was for a group of um for an african group right and I think it was around the time of the, the white star line and the black star line, you know, like this, yeah, this uh, whole African movement. Mm -hmm. And he spoke, at a library. To, like, and you just things like, the situations he was getting himself into, as well, for the times that were in it. Yeah, do you know, um, were quite incredible, and um, and I mean in the translation, obviously it's lost, which is one of the themes of the show was. Our character, Joe Boyle, who was called Jack Hettle, um, wants to learn Irish because he wants to find out, to hear it the way that Joe told it, or that, that Joseph told it, you know? Yeah. He wants, like, the beauty of it and that. So he, like, he becomes familiar with the ghost. He imagines, like, he's living with the ghost of Joseph there and they walk around the building and the, the walls talk, you know, like there's the line about him. Uh, some people say if the, only these walls could talk, I wish they'd shut the fuck up, you know? <laughs> and uh, so just things like that, just about the, the whole history of St. Connell's as well, because it's come from a time, uh, all those asylums in Ireland were built at the same time. They were based on, uh, um, St. Connell's in particular, was based on a British military barracks or in India, do you know? So it was all stuff of the empire. Yeah. That, and... Uh, and people were put in for the most the, the innocuous reasons and, and for political reasons, for, you know, like young men put in because they were inheriting land. So put the boy in the, 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 the hospital and then the land goes to the uncle or whatever. Oh, yeah. you know, things like young girls who were regarded as too beautiful, you know, and just lots of stuff. And uh, and obviously pregnancy, yeah, all kinds of things that people were put into. Um, you, uh, there was an epilepsy, epileptic ward as well, where um people who had epilepsy were all kept in the one ward, and uh, and there was a big huge farm there. It was also the biggest business in town, so it was a huge farm there. Uh, so there'd be all these people working there, as well, and. Uh, There'd be you'd hear stories like I got us interviewing people, hearing stories about like when the circus had been in town, they take all the residents out to see the circus, so there'd be a whole procession of maybe three hundred people down the main street in Letterkenny, on the way to the circus. Oh, 
Wow. And yeah, lots of stories like that. And so I intertwined those stories uh, from a local who worked there. And th there was just stories of dances. There used to be local dances there where lots of the town people would go up for the dances. Um, and so it was a story about this guy, um, Joe Boyle, Jack Hettle, who's unseen, do you know? Yeah. No one really appreciates is that what he needs to be doing is making punk music again, you know? And that's about his journey of coming to that place where somebody says, hey, do you know, we'll go downtown today, we'll, we'll buy an electric guitar today. And it's just like that, the power of that. Yeah. The, the, uh, so. And, and around this time, um, with um, Rural Electric and with The Mental, you were kind of um, collaborating with uh, Laura Sheeran yeah. an awful lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she seems to be um, uh, fairly present through a lot of your work yeah, going forward. Yeah. I started off, I knew Laura since she was a, a child. I knew her mother. Her mother was a, my best friend. And um, I grew to be my best friend. And uh, so, as I say, I, I learned things from Laura when she was four. She'd be <laughs> playing the piano. And, you know, and she'd hit a note in the piano. And it would be, all right, I like the sound of that. And then she'd go to the next, oh, she liked the sound of those two notes together. Yeah. And the third note, no, I don't like that one, so I'll use that one instead. <laughs> you know? And just that's what music is, the relationship yeah. between notes. It you is, know? Yeah, and, and it's just what notes sound good together and what notes don't, you know, like yeah. in a very subjective way to it. Can I, and uh, so w when we were doing Rural Electric, Kevin Duffy wanted a break from touring we'd done an awful lot in the, the, the few years he was another long time collaborator yeah you? yeah um another brilliant musician and really so i mean he'd been there since 2000 and since 2000 i think yeah jack Kettle. he'd been in jack Kettle, and um and the dairy boat and that so 2000 and and yeah we'd done a scottish tour in three so yeah 2005 kevin wanted a break and uh so laura came on board and uh, she was only 17 at that stage and she was just incredible just a, an amazing creative person and a great attitude to work as well yeah and she's kind of doing the whole like rock star kind of thing or the rock a bit of a pop star and stuff and everything mixed in between yeah she I mean she's like she does everything as well like and I, I mean she just finished as assistant director with the Abbey Okay. You know, so she's got all her own, all, like, and the thing about Laura's well is like she's self-taught in so many areas mm -hmm. that um, musically and dance and film, you know, she does a lot of video stuff, but she's she's taught herself all these things and mastered them. And you did uh, Drone Bone Jetty with her as well. Yeah. She directed that, didn't she? She directed that and, and filmed it. That was quite incredible because it was, I was doing a residency I wanted to do a, a, a play that I was writing called Drone Bone Jetty. It was called Loving initially. Um, it was set in the future about artificial intelligence and about this person Loving and Loving's a performer and it's about when the um, the, the Academy of Hologrammatic Art Hologrammatic Art in Galway <laughs> where they... Um, artificial intelligence uh, so at the start of it they got all the actors and all the artists all the top artists and basically got all the info drained them observed them got the music just downloaded them basically 
and uh, and then they discovered that there was something missing, that an unpredictable quality. They, they, they had all the perfection, but what they needed was quirkiness, and oddness. So then they give the work. They, they look for all the outsider artists, uh, bad artists, the worst act, the bad actors, you know. <laughs> The dodgy musicians. Yeah. So the worst of the worst. So they pick up these people. And there's a pair of twins um, from Castle Troy, uh, and their mother was a Velvet Underground fan. So as little girls, they weren't really twins. They were adopted, but they they grew up together, and they started to get plastic surgery when they grew older to make them look like identical twins. <laughs> their mother used to bring them. She used to play Velvet Underground songs at funerals and weddings. <laughs> so at, um, they'd be playing at funerals when they're kids. They'd be playing the tambourine at a crematorium, singing Lou Reed's Waiting for the Man. So it's just all these weird characters. <laughs> yeah. And they're playing it. They're working in a... They're being drained. They're, they're in this college of... Or the Academy of Hall Dramatic Art. And they're so frustrated by the work. They're well paid. They're the only artists in work. Uh because now it's all holograms it's like they've got holograms that's um marlon brando and uh marlon brando and it's not lily merlin uh anyway marlon brando is doing playboy the western world <laughs> and uh so there's no room for for artists really it's art without artists yeah but uh the these holograms these, these misfits they're getting paid they're working so to entertain themselves they open up a club called heebie-jeebies up on the west side in Galway and they have just far out stuff they do really far out work so we had the script I'd written the script and I'd done a lot of the soundtrack stuff because I found it helped me to write it did a lot of the soundtrack stuff and we thought okay it's going to open up again at Christmas and we'll get and what happened was it closed down again so we started rehearsing in isolation on Zoom, and then we decided that we'd make it we'd, we'd make it a hybrid, and then from a hybrid we decided, well, why make it half stage and half stage and half what? Why not have it cinematic as well? Yeah. So we went out to Ross Muck, we booked it, and it was actually it was still in lockdown. We had to get special permission, and we had a producer Danny Gill working with us as well. And a couple of other collaborators. We had um, Micah Halloran, who lives in Ennis Diamond now, who works in UCG, who's an amazing lighting designer as well. And so we, we created this movie that that was, part of it was filmed on location and part of it was filmed in on the town hall stage during lockdown. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, and that won a few awards and things. And it was, yeah, it was. I mean, the basic is the story of this guy Pop Turtle who runs away from the academy. The rest of them meet a demise, and and, and he, um, he makes a runaway kind of thing. And yeah, and the the whole th- the other part about the plot as well is Loving's father was a programmer, and he tells her not to worry that they've implanted um, a trip switch kind of thing. So that one day, all the artificial intelligence is going to flip, and it's not going to serve the masters, the commodifiers. <laughs> yeah. It's going to serve love, 
you know so it oh, ends up listening great. to this religious hope that yeah it's really bad now but one day it's <laughs> all going to change and love will you know just like yeah. my father told me so it's a bit like jesus kind of mm-hmm. thing. the loving's course, a bit yeah. like jesus kind of thing because when she walks into a room or he does a show people are immediately in love with her um because she embodies love she's got a scarred face and a gammy leg from fighting in car crashes and things like that but her whole being is just love so there's a bit of kind of Jesus analogy there kind of thing yeah it's very fairly pertinent for what's going on in the world at the moment as well like it's, it's, yeah it's mad it's AI really, art and everything yeah, yeah. I mean we, we're going to like we're, I think just putting it up on YouTube for free we, we used to have limited showings of it and it was in the Edinburgh Fringe but we're thinking now it's just because it's coming up all the time yeah it is yeah definitely yeah like, looking forward towards the future do you think that um, live performance will become even more valuable more vital because of all this bullshit with AI where they yeah, can I think so scan yeah. people's faces for extras and they can get uh, you know an algorithm to write a script yeah. and all this yeah. kind of stuff like yeah. you know it's amazing what the AI can do it is yeah it's wild yeah and but there's always going to be some amount of want for you know a human made thing i think even with there will be scripts made by ai at some point there will be all this kind of stuff there will always be a want for a human made yeah i heard hank williams doing straight out of compton oh yeah <laughs> oh, yeah all that stuff sake. going up it's like a, 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 it's brilliant yeah. it is brilliant. but at the same time it's scary and like uh like t- just today i heard um uh johnny cash doing barbie girl yeah. Like, isn't it <laughs> like, wow. and it sounds but exactly like them it's, it's wild funny because it was applying for to do this tour and um what i was saying is that like we used a boy quote as well that boys in 2002 yeah said music is going to become so on stream online like he's predicting then that it's just going to be everywhere and he's for a unique species you get better get used to touring because that's going to be the only unique experience there is. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something that lockdown gave us as well, was we had everything that we needed entertainment-wise, streaming at our fingertips, all yeah. the information, all that, except we didn't have that communal experience of, of course, being together, yeah. of, of the event, yeah. and of the live, of the music actually happening right now in oh, front yeah. of us, the three-dimensional. So I think we're entering into a real good time for performance because oh, it's yeah, going to just be valued and it's like music's free mm-hmm. except now you, you performers are going to be saying well yeah yeah that's free you can have all that free but yeah <laughs> we want paid for this of course yeah yeah, yeah. you'd expect at the very least for anything that you're putting in that much effort and time and whatever else mm, into yeah. it you know you need to be able to um, come up with something at the other side of mm. it and the most kind of recent stuff that you were doing it was um, Nettle Horse and Zeitgeist Jukebox yeah yeah so um that the show Drumbone Jetty was the second of there'd been a show Radio Rosario which was set in future Galway yeah and then Nettle Horse was really kind of partly the third in that futuristic series and we'd done that um, we'd done that in Tulla last November end of November and Town Hall Theatre in Galway uh, set in the future and then seems to tear into Lee and now we're hoping that that will bring that touring I think it's pretty definite now okay, that we'll great. bring that touring in the new year Brilliant. and that's set in the future as well um, about this benevolent 
uh, well, kind of benevolent, dodgy, a dodgy heiress, 103 years old, from Boston, who wants to come back to Ireland and wants to be cryonically uh, preserved. She, her doctors has told her that science hasn't caught up. She's going to have to be cryonically preserved. So she wants to, to bring her stuff with her in a pyramid. So she's going to build a pyramid. It's going to be in parent until she can bring her back. And in the west of Ireland. And so she thinks, well, what happens if she comes out of the pyramid and people don't like her? So our people start talking to the Vatican and they figure, you know, what would I have to do to become a saint? Yeah. So she starts doing benev- benevolent stuff. And part of that is that she gives away um, five acres. Uh, these these are American lawyers. She's got land. She's Irish, Boston Irish. So she wants to give away five acres of land to poor people, you know, poor people who live in their cars, yeah. <laughs> and uh, five so, acres. Uh, so they get so they talk to this dodgy politician who's been blacklisted or mm-hmm. he's off the, you know, been taken off the law society, and uh, he's oh yeah, I, I can do that. And he's funny enough, he says uh, there's a national law now, you know, that you can actually build a stable without planning permission because it's part of the whole eco thing, you know, the horses, bring back horses kind of thing. So there's, yeah, there's an eco grant that you can get to build a stable, not a grant, but you can, you don't need planning permission to build a stable. And he says, and he says, and locally, we've amended that to say that, you know, if you need someone to mind a horse, they can build an extension onto the stable. <laughs> so technically you can build a wooden house without planning permission, you'd need a horse. Yeah. So it's this, the show's about this horse fair. That's these people that win the, the five acres in a lottery. And um, there's a horse fair where they'll all have to buy a horse and then they'll get their five acres. So they all, they're all they all moving from the east. It's like the Grapes of Wrath, you know, like Steinbeck. There's all these people with all their furniture yeah, moving, yeah, yeah. Moving and living in cars and they're all going to this place where they can build new homes. And so it's about that. So that's Nettle Horse. And then Zeitgeist Jukebox is very much a live show where I've only done it once. That was in Campbell's, wasn't it? That was in Campbell's and Clock and Order. So it was experimental there. It was was really exceptionally good. Turned out better than I could even hope because what it is, is it's a collaboration with the audience where you make an album in an hour. I've been doing this thing for a long time. What's what's that again? You make an album in an hour. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. I mean, I've done this thing for years where I compose a song Mm-hmm. With words from the audience, yeah, and I thought, well, what happens if not just using the words, you know, like maybe one song like that, but what if you say to the audience, like, okay, we're going to make an album now together, and it's going to be the best album in the world. It's this is the best album ever, and we're here now. I think how significant that is. <laughs> yeah. Think that think that one day there's going to be tours walking through Campbell's and saying, oh yeah, and. That's where that lady sat, you know, and, and they'll be talking about this album for generations yeah. and making references to things like you'd say, instead of the fire announcement, you'd say, you know, smoke in the water. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> the, the studio burning down. So you make all the references to classic albums and that. And then we gradually make an album together. And I have lots of extra instruments. So you can ask people you know that's a musician in the audience who didn't expect to be asked up and say, would you play bass or would you play? It's really interesting to ask them to play an instrument that they don't usually play. Yeah, of course. Or you can say, anyone in the audience like to play <laughs> the Mellotron? And so it, I'm not in control of which way it goes. Yeah. And you end up, you're going towards 12 songs and 
you can do the whole thing, the drama, dramatization. You can the the self doubt can come in about song ten, you know, and uh, and 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 musical differences and tensions, yeah, and all that kind of thing, you know, and uh, and as well as that, drugs drink like the drugs becomes you know we get people get up to go to the toilet. What's happening in the toilets, you <laughs> yeah. know, and the sex and you know like it's just it's really become degenerate. He's just fucking risking the whole fucking album here is, is, is jeopardized because you, you know like the fucking coke and you're fucking yeah. all over you know and you're just like that and it's, it's just really good good fun and it's oh, that's amazing. really amazing good fun. And then you get backing singers up like the finale uh-huh. that we done in, in uh, Clochanor was just incredible. It was just yeah, we'd backing singers and it was a, a band, full band playing and yeah, mighty fun. That's wild. That's so interesting. Are you hoping yeah. to do that again? I'm I hope to do you that are. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because as well as it's going to be different every time. I, I mean, obviously you'll develop some patterns, but you can go against those patterns as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, potentially it's, it's just there, you know, when people get into it as well Yeah. and let go, like it's, it's, uh, yeah, it was incredibly good. And I'm not saying because there's other people, it's all the audiences involved. So the, the creativity of the audience is incredible. That, and because it's so fresh. But yeah, so we'll be doing that next summer. Okay. Again, hopefully getting festivals. We're doing Nettlehorse, hopefully we'll tour from January. And um, January, February will be Nettlehorse will tour. And then I've got another show um, where myself and Finn Robinson who's another long-time collaborator. Um, I made an album with Finn as well, with the Highly Strung Orchestra. And we've done a few shows together. And I love working with Finn as well. So we've composed a soundtrack to play live with the Buster Keaton film, Sherlock Jr., which is, next year it'll be 100 years old. Okay. And we, we were commissioned to do that for the Regional Cultural Centre in Letterkenny. And it's just sublime that the, the film is sublime. And usually when you see it, you can see it on YouTube for free. Um, usually when you see it, it's got uh, piano music and clarinet and it really goes into that jazzy feel and tries to mm-hmm. yeah. So we kind of got contemporary music with synthesizers and electric guitars and things. Like that. And it's um, and it's just beautiful because Buster Keaton is such a beautiful person to watch. Then the, the editing of the film is incredible. The gags, it's all just sublime. And then you take kids as a family show. So you bring in, like, we'd been looking at it so much that we'd forgot about how's the audience going to react to this. We'd just been wanting to get the music so we could play it live and hit all the, 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 the spots, you know? Yeah. And uh, then the audience came in and there's little kids there and they're breaking up over gags that yeah. Buster Keaton done a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. And they're just delighted. And then there's grandparents, obviously, and older people who can identify with silent maybe they wouldn't have been around for silent movies but they would have seen you know they'd know who Buster Keaton was yeah and then hipsters all of it so it's a really it's a very interesting project as well so we're doing that in the Town Hall Theatre in Galway on the 10th of September 10th of oh, September wonderful yeah and then in Athen Ryan the Heritage Centre the 17th of September perfect that's great well John little John thanks so much thank you so much yeah thank, thank you. you very much wonderful. thank you for your patience for listening to me and rabbit and on like oh that. no it was great I tell you we could have done another hour and a half oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was that was fantastic uh, my name is Richie I'm Lavin uh, check out the podcast at the uh, schnug with a h and uh, check out little John's uh, Instagram and Facebook and uh, go to see the shows yeah absolutely 
Thank you both. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Lam. Thanks, Richard. No bother. <laughs>